Thank you, choir. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11 is where we are this morning. While you're turning there, let me, uh, let me just say thanks to our choir. You know, we don't always realize or recognize um, the, uh, the efforts they make to prepare to lead us in worship. And uh, you know, even a day like today, it was a short night, quick night, one hour less, and, and yet still here uh, full, full speed leading both services. And even in Easter coming up here at the end of April, uh, 23rd I believe it is, uh, leading three services, Saturday night. Uh, for one service and then Sunday morning for two services. And so you know, let me just say we're so blessed by our choir, by our music ministry, Nathan, and, and what they do to help, uh, help to lead us and to prepare our hearts for worship. And as we open up God's Word, I'm telling you, I've been in a lot of churches, and it's a real blessing to be able to have your heart prepared, your mind steadied and ready to dig into what Scripture has for you, what God has for you after the worship that we're able to experience today. So choir, thank you so much for leading us uh, again today as you do so faithfully every single week. Acts chapter 11 is where we are uh, this morning. Uh, how many of you have a name, your parents gave you a name after a Bible character? Let me just see your, your hands real quickly, all right? Quite a few, quite a few. I remember, uh, I remember having a, a person speak here on Mother's Day a number of years ago. Her name was Iris Blue. There's a name for you, Iris Blue, if you're thinking of names for somebody, Iris Blue. And she came and she spoke, and I remember her saying, uh, now let me just say this, Iris had quite a, quite a history. She had um, had run a house of prostitution back in her early days, had come to Christ. Before that, she had been in and out of jail and uh, just a real rough life, very dramatic testimony. Came to Christ and ultimately God changed her life, sent her on the mission field, she and her husband, and, uh, and uh, have been impacting people ever since. But I remember her when she spoke here a number of years ago for Mother's Day. She made the comment. She said, you know, uh, I, I think about how parents sometimes name their kids after people in the Bible thinking that's going to make a difference. She said, I was in prison with all of them, Mary, Martha, Esther, Ruth. <laughs> And, uh, and so I think about that. I was thinking about names just this week and uh, the significance of names and, and how we go about choosing names. You know, if you're naming a child or whatever, you go about choosing names. And a lot of times it has very little to do with what the name means. You know, back in the biblical times, obviously, it had a lot of significance as to what a name meant. But we don't choose names as much for some reason today based on what the names mean. It kind of is, is the sound of it, how the names fit. Does it sound rugged if it's a guy? Does it sound pretty if it's a girl? All those kind of things. I don't even remember what my name means. I guess Dweller by the Brooks or something. I don't know what my name means exactly. Uh, but well, we don't put a lot of significance on what they mean. By the way, wouldn't it be neat if we called each other by what our names meant? Instead of by real names, wouldn't that be cool? How are you, dweller by the trees? <laughs> yeah, what was your name again? Defender of the North. That'd be kind of cool. Maybe we could try that sometime around here. But we don't put a lot of significance on names the way they did back in the day, back in scriptural times, Old Testament, New Testament alike. alike. There were a, a tremendous amount of significance that was placed on names. Tremendous amount. In fact, what we're going to look at this morning in the passage we're going to look at right towards the end is going to be a specific name that was given to a specific group of people and what I want us to look at this morning as we break down this next passage that we're going to get to in the book of Acts is I want us to look at a, at a message entitled, More Than a Name. And there's going to be three principles, three truths we're going to pull out of this passage that we're going to look at. And it's going to help us to understand what it means to carry something that is more than just a name. Now let me just say this, that I, I preach a lot of messages through the course of the year and 20 years of ministry. I've preached, I guess, my fair share of sermons, and I would be willing to say that every one of them is important. Not every one of them is good, but every one of them is important. And I would be willing to say that for this one this morning, this is one that if you'll just lock in and if you'll be willing to say, Lord, do your way in my life this morning. Help me to apply this passage and help me to apply these truths in the way that you have for me. I would say that this could perhaps be one of those messages that could be a hinge in your life. For those of you that don't have a relationship with God, this could change everything for you. 
And for those of us who do, if we're willing to be honest before ourselves and to allow the Lord to do his work in our lives, this could perhaps as well for those of us who know Christ, to where we could see this message have an impact in our lives because of the truth that's in, simply that's in this passage of Scripture. Let me give you a little recap before we begin to dive into chapter 11. As we look back through the course of the book of Acts, we have found a lot of dramatic things that have happened. In fact, it really begins springboarding out of the Gospels, and at the close of the Gospels, we find that Jesus, God himself, who chose to come as a person, would ultimately give his life on the cross, and he died on the cross. Three days later, he rose again from the dead, and he's been alive forevermore. Jesus came and he gave himself as a sacrifice so that every person, regardless of their background, regardless of what they've done, where they've been, can come to a relationship with God through faith and through repentance. And so the book of Acts springboards out of that. We find at the beginning of Acts that Jesus ascends back to heaven. And the early disciples or the early leaders, the followers of Christ, are left all to themselves. Jesus had made a promise that he would send the Holy Spirit to those early believers. And that's exactly what happened in Acts chapter 2. We find in dramatic fashion the Holy Spirit is sent. He comes, he begins to indwell those who have a relationship with Christ. And on that very day, in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, we find that the church is born into existence. 3,000 were saved in just one day as a result of the preaching of the gospel message of Christ and his death and his burial and his resurrection and of our need for him because of our sin. And so as the church began to take root and as it began to grow, very quickly opposition would begin to spring up. And it sprung up from the outside. Jewish leaders that were all about religion but all against relationship with Christ began to come against that early church. And they began to persecute them from the very early days. In chapter 3, we see healings begin to take place. God is moving in dramatic fashion. Chapter 4, persecution crops up yet again from the religious leaders of the day. In chapter 5, God begins to deal with some hypocrisy that had taken root in the church in the lives of two people, Ananias and Sapphira. We find in chapter 6 that a man by the name of Stephen comes on the scene. He was an early leader, but in chapter 7, he would lose his life, giving himself as the first martyr for the faith and for the sake of the gospel. As a result of his stoning at the hands again of religious leaders, led by a man named Saul, who later would become Paul, we find that persecution breaks out now for a third time recorded in the book of Acts. And the church, though it is growing increasingly and very rapidly, is also increasingly under persecution and under opposition and under attack. Well, in chapter 8, we find that the gospel makes its way as a result of being scattered all the way to Samaria. Samaritans would come to Christ. They're going to be saved. We find in chapter 9 that Saul, who had been the original enemy of the church, is now coming to Christ. He is, is made right with God. He is saved and forgiven. And then we find that the gospel makes its way into the lives of a group of people called God-fearers. They had chosen the Jewish religion but had never come to a relationship with Christ. They were Gentile by nature. And so we find that Cornelius and his household come to Christ. They're forgiven. They're made right with God. And now the gospel has begun to spread to all people. As we pick up here in chapter 11, we find just a little taste of what is going on, that God is at work in mighty fashion, and yet the enemy is at work at the same time as well. And it's real easy to see as we begin to look through the book of Acts that for these early followers of Christ, these were men and women, these were people for whom the word Christian was not just a name, it was more than a name. But for these early believers, for these Christians, the name Christian it characterized and defined who they were, that they were changed, their lives had been changed, and yet at the same time, their lives were being changed. They had come to Jesus Christ in repentance and in faith. Instantly at that point, they had been made right with God. They had been forgiven of their sin, and that veil had been broken, separating them from God. 
And yet still they were being changed day by day, week by week, month by month. And now as we would see through the remainder of the New Testament, year by year, they were being molded and shaped into the image of Christ. The word Christian was more than a name. It was a changed life and at the same time an ever-changing life. And so we come here to Acts chapter 11, verse 19, and we begin to pick up and we begin to see yet again how God increases this work And we begin to understand what it means truly, according to his word, to be a Christian. Verse 19, Acts chapter 11. We'll read it, pull out three principles, and hopefully make some application that will be a real help for you. Verse 19, Acts chapter 11. It says, So then, those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. And the news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord, for he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Three truths that I want us to recognize in this passage that stand out to me. And the first is this, and I sure hope you'll jot these down. Representing and sharing Christ should be a result of our salvation. Representing and sharing Christ should be a result of our salvation. When you look at a person whose life has been changed by Christ, they have been separated from God because of sin, they're walking according to their own agenda, their own ways. Whenever that person is met by God, the Holy Spirit convicts them of their sin, and they turn from that sin. The Bible calls it repentance, and they turn wholeheartedly to Christ, just like our choir saying they're sold out to Jesus Christ, surrendered to him, and they place their faith in Christ for salvation. Whenever we see a person who is in such a place as that, it is the norm for that person then to not only represent Christ, but to then begin to show and to share Christ with those around him. Now, now again, as I said last week, the goal here is not to place a guilt trip on the lives of those who may find it difficult to share Christ. If you're like most believers, it is a step of faith. It is with fear and trembling that you look to share Christ. Your heart begins to beat. You're worried about what you're going to say. But the very basic fact of the matter when it all boils down is that it is the nature of believers whose lives have been changed to go about sharing Christ, representing him in this world where he's placed us, where he's planted us. Now, as we look in this passage, there's something that we need to recognize. In fact, uh, uh, chapter 11, verse 19, really ties in, and it begins to pick up where chapter 8, verse 4 left off. So flip back with me, if you will, just to get a sense of the flow of what it says back in chapter 8. Let's let's look at verse 1, for example. Chapter 8 in the book of Acts. It says in chapter 8, verse 1, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him, that Stephen, to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Look at verse 3. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. And therefore those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Now flip back to chapter 11, verse 19, where we started. This is where it picks up again. 
It says, so then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. Now what we need to recognize is that in between chapter 8 verse 4 and chapter 11 verse 19, there's an awful lot that goes on. And what God does is, is he sets the stage. He ultimately gets the gospel to this Saul who had persecuted the church. Saul is saved, made right with God. He ultimately gets the gospel down to Samaria. He ultimately leads Gentiles to Christ. He affirms to Peter in the early church that the gospel was for everyone, not just for Jews, but for Gentiles and for everyone alike. And so there's a lot that happens in between. But basically what is occurring here is that you've got a church that is on fire, that is being stretched beyond its capacity to be able to adjust on its own. They need God's power. They need God's help. They're responding to the command of Christ to take the gospel to the corners of the world. And as they make their way out, they begin to see God meet them where they are and begin to use them. These were Christians that were, that, that were diligent to represent Christ in their world. One of the best books that I read last year was a book entitled 30 Years That Changed the World by Michael Green. And I want you to, just listen. I want you to listen as I read a little snippet from this book, just a, a quick couple of sentences, when he speaks of the need for us to be folks who are faithful to share about Christ where he sends us. He says, often two minutes of honest testimony, the more broken and unschooled the better, is worth 20 minutes of eloquent discourse by some silver-tongued preacher. The early Christians knew this. They were not all preachers, but they were all witnesses. And this early church understood that for them the word Christian was more than just a name. It wasn't a name that they threw out there to get a vote, as many do today. It wasn't a name to characterize where they stood politically, as many do today. The word Christian was not a name they tossed out there to get in with the right group or to make a sale, so that when they stand before a person, a client, who they obviously know is is, uh, in relationship with Christ, they just toss it out there so that they could build a bigger network and get in and maybe make a sale. The word Christian was not something they used to platform themselves. The word Christian identified them as people whose lives have been changed and whose lives were being changed constantly as a result of a relationship with this Jesus Christ that had died in their place, risen from the dead, and sent them out with a commission to share the gospel. It was more than a name. When they were called Christians for the first time in Antioch, it was more than a name for them specifically. And they understood the command to go and to share, to represent Christ in this world. And I just want us to remind ourselves that whenever we look in Scripture, God has done the same thing for us. Look at how he sent them, for example. Look look at verse 19, again, where we started. It says, when they were scattered because of the persecution, they went on their way. They made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. Interesting that he mentions those three places in Scripture. Phoenicia was a region immediately north of Judea. It was a 60-mile boat trip from Phoenicia, from that region, over to Cyprus. Cyprus, where Barnabas was from. Cyprus was an island group in the Mediterranean that would be reached with the gospel. We find that in the book of Acts. But then it also says that the gospel made its way through the lives of these early believers to Antioch. Now, I don't want to bore you with extended details about the city of Antioch, but let me just share some things that, that may be helpful for what we're looking at. Antioch was basically formed. It was built in 300 B.C., about 300 years before these early believers would make their way through that region. It was settled on a place called the Orontes River, And it very rapidly began to grow. Why? Because in the early days, it was on a caravan trading route. People would travel through that city for the sake of trading. And the the city grew in number very, very rapidly. It was a, by the time the the book of Acts was written, it was a city known for its culture. The third largest city in the ancient world behind Rome and behind Alexandria. 
but it was also a city known for its pagan religion. In fact, there, were, there was much pagan religion that took place there, and the name of Christ was absolutely void in that city. By the time three centuries would pass, it would be the city of Antioch that would be known, if you've studied church history, it would be a city that would be a metropolitan center for, for theology, for Christian thought. Within three centuries, the city would be practically transformed. It would become the center place. Uh, I, was, I would liken it to Jerusalem in the New Testament as the center place for the expansion of the gospel. But it would be Antioch that the gospel would go out from to the Gentiles. It would become that important of a city. Why would it become that way? How would that happen? It would happen because of what took place right here in Acts chapter 11. When you found a group of Christians that were sold out to Christ that would inundate this city with a passion for the message of the gospel. And they represented Christ where he sent them, and they shared Christ to all those that they met. They did it with reckless abandon. You know, let me just say for us as well that God plants us where we are for a reason. And Christian, if you have a relationship with Christ, I sure hope that for you that word Christian is more than just a name, that it reflects the fact that your life has been changed, that your life is ever-changing And wherever God has planted you as a Christian does not matter where that might be. You're planted there to make a difference for the sake of Christ. For example, if you are a physician, you're not just a physician if you're a Christian, but rather you're God's representative in the medical field. So that whenever you go to work, whenever you perform surgery, whenever you help people that are ailing, they get to see what God looks like when he helps sick people. If you're a business owner, but you're a believer in Christ, a follower of Christ, And for you, Christian, is more than just a name. You're not just a business owner. You're God's representative in that workplace so that your employees and so that your clients get to see what God looks like when God does business. If you're a teacher and you're a Christian, you're not just a teacher, but rather you're God's representative in that classroom so that those students and your co-teachers and the administrators get to see what God looks like when God teaches a class. Do you understand what I'm saying? It doesn't matter where we are, what we do. You could work in a restaurant, you could work in a mill, you could work anywhere, doing whatever type of vocation. But if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Christ, I'm telling you, man, everything changes for you because he plants you there as his representative. In a classroom, uh, uh, on an athletic field, uh, wherever you may be, you are God's representative there to ultimately display Christ, representing him, and to share Christ with those that are around you. That's what these early believers did. And I'm telling you, the world was turned upside down because they got it, they understood. God bless this church if we ever come to a place increasingly where as we scatter on, on Sunday night, going out into the workplaces on Monday, that we take the gospel with us. And in places all over this city, all over these islands, both uh, uh, here in our own country and even internationally for those who travel, what if we took the gospel and represented Christ and shared him everywhere he scattered us? On a weekly basis, how long would it take to see these islands begin to understand there is a Savior who died, who loves me, who meet me where I am, who changed my life? And so for these early believers, being a Christian was more than just a name. They didn't just toss it out there flippantly. They didn't call themselves Christians because they went to church for an hour and 15 minutes on a Sunday morning and say, I'm a Christian. It changed who they were. And it should for us as well. Principle number two. What it means to be more than a name. We find for these early believers that they represented, they shared Christ where they went. But the second principle for us is that we must learn to celebrate one another's victories and share one another's burdens. If we're going to be Christians in more than just name, but if we're going to have lives that are changed and are being changed, then we have to learn 
to celebrate the victories of those around us and to help shoulder the burdens of those around us who hurt. Back at Christmas time, our family got a we for Christmas. How many of you are we owners, all right? What a blessed invention that was. Well, I also got along with this we, um, I, got, I got Madden 2011, right? Which is a, another just blessing upon blessing. And so, so I just, I love playing Madden. I just whip the computer almost every time I play. Well, uh, about a week ago or so, uh, Hannah, my six-year-old, said, Dad, I want to I wanna, I wanna play the Wii with you. And uh, I said, all right. She said, I want to play football. Well, it's a little bit complicated, but I thought, okay. I, you know, she wants to play football, let her play football. And so I uh, set it up for two people. She's got her controller, I've got my controller. So we start playing Wii, and of course I'm going easy. Well, it did not take long. I've been accused of being a competitive individual at times in my life. It didn't take long. I was throwing deep on that six-year-old. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I'm ashamed to say it, but man, <laughs> ah, gosh, confession time. Uh, you know, it's hard sometimes, you know, it's, it, it's real, it, it's easy to elevate ourselves at the expense of another, isn't it? And there are times when we as Christians can be very good at that. You know, Scripture tells us in Romans 12, verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. But I'll just be honest, one of the slights of the church today is that we often get that badly confused to where many of us, if we're not careful, find ourselves rejoicing over those who are weeping and weeping over those who are rejoicing. And we can come to a place where we can become so self-centered if we're not careful that when another person is elevated or blessed by God, they experience some victory in their lives. If we're not careful, we can find ourselves loathing and despising, even angry with, jealous over what they've experienced, rather than to be content with what God has granted to us. Does that make sense? And if we're not careful, we can come to a place to where we're also so self-centered that whenever we see another brother or sister in the faith, one who is hurting, one who is struggling, one who is burdened in their lives, rather than to rush to them with everything that's in us, what we can do, what we choose to do many times, is to distance ourselves from those in the body of Christ who are hurting. Why? So as not to obligate ourselves to be involved in the messiness of their lives. Even though Galatians chapter 6, verse 2 tells us that we are to bear one another's burdens in the body of Christ. I mean, it's a plain command. And if we have a difficulty being able to celebrate the victory of another within the family of God or even outside the family of God, what the reveals is we have a hard time with contentment. And at the root of it, we're questioning God. God, why didn't you do that for me? God, why didn't you give me that job? God, why didn't I get that promotion? Why do I have to be stuck where I am and they get to experience these blessings? In other words, God, I'm not content with what you've given me. I can't even trust you with what you've blessed me with. See, there are real issues there, but these early believers got it. <laughs> I mean, they celebrate with one another, and I'll show you how, an example in one man's life in just a second. But at the same time, again, one of the slights against, against the body of Christ today in our culture is that we don't care for our own. We shoot them, kick them when they're down. I forget who it was, but there was uh, someone years ago who's famous for the comment that I would have long since become a Christian if I did not know some. I wonder what God thinks of that. Look at Barnabas's perspective. Chapter 11, you know, it's interesting what Barnabas did. And this is a great example of what we're looking at in this second principle. It says in verse 21, the hand of the Lord was with them. Those are the Christians in Antioch. And a large number who believed turned to the Lord. 
verse 22, the news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Now, let me just stop right there. What's happening here is the, this, the church in Jerusalem is still kind of the hub at this point. And the Christian faith, as it began to propagate and to spread, really spread out of Jerusalem. The persecution arose, and the Christians were scattered. The apostles stayed in Jerusalem, but the remainder scattered out. And so when the church in Jerusalem hears what's going on in Antioch, Antioch is considerably north of Jerusalem, significant travel. What they decided was, we're going to send Barnabas down. We're going to hustle him uh, or, or up to Antioch. We're going to hustle him up there. And uh, you know, Barnabas, why don't you go check things out and make sure that it's legitimate. And so they send Barnabas to Antioch. Verse 23, then when he, Barnabas, arrived and he witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. Now let me just paint this picture real quickly. You know what Barnabas could have chosen to do? He could have chosen when he arrived there in Antioch, seeing what was taking place. I mean, droves of people coming to Christ. The hand of God obviously at work. The God's power being demonstrated. What Barnabas could have done was he could have kicked and screamed and said, that's it, I'm leaving. I don't want to be a part of this. Why? Because I wasn't chosen to be the one who, who, uh, who uh, kick-started all this stuff. Why is it that Peter always gets to be the one who preaches the sermons? And why is it that, that, uh, that, that Paul is the one who, who gets the credit for, for getting saved in Damascus and then ultimately leading people to Christ? Why is it that all these other people, the apostles, get all the credit for everything? And here I am just stuck, being whistled up to Antioch to just see if everything's legitimate. He could have done that. But what he did when he arrived and he witnessed the grace of God, it says at verse 23, he rejoiced and he began to encourage them remain true to the Lord. Why did he do that? Verse 24, the character of his heart, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. But then there's something else about Barnabas that stands out. Verse 25, and he left for Tarsus to look for Saul. Uh, let me get you to flip back real quickly to chapter 9. Look at verse 30 when you get to chapter 9. You know, Saul had come to Christ in dramatic fashion. He'd already gotten himself in trouble a couple of times, and they finally had to just cart him out of town. And he'd be back. But look at verse 30, speaking of, uh, of Saul or Paul. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. Uh, Paul was from Tarsus. It's his hometown. He comes to Christ. His life has radically changed. He begins to witness to everybody that moves. People are hating him. The Jews are plotting to kill him. And finally, the early church had to say, we've got to send you back to Tarsus. Well, if you read later in the New Testament, Galatians specifically piecing things together, you find that three years elapsed, and it has been a number of years since Paul went to Tarsus. Now, whenever you look at what's happening now in Antioch, and I hope you can follow me here, when it says in verse 25 that Barnabas left for Tarsus to look for Saul, that word look for in the English, well, in the Greek, it's the word anazateo, which means a laborious search. When Barnabas got to Antioch, or back to Tarsus, he had no idea where, where Paul was. No idea. Probably had not heard from him since the day he left. Didn't know where to find him, didn't know where he's living. When he gets back to Tarsus, however, he begins to search for this man that would shoulder the load of leading these new believers in Antioch. Here's what Barnabas could have done. He gets to Antioch and he sees the new believers coming to Christ, the obvious hand of God. He could have kicked and screamed because he wasn't a part of it and gone home. Or he could have said, man, oh man, look at this. I got this whole brand new church all to myself. 
I'm a mega church pastor. That's what he could have said. I got them all to me. All these new believers, like putty in my hands, I can teach them. I can be the one that gets credit for it. I'll probably make it in some Bible one day about how Barnabas pastored the first church in Antioch, and I'll be the one that everybody taught. He could have done that, but you know what he did? In humility, he said, this is too big for me. I'm going to go find Paul. And doing whatever it takes, he searches and he finds him and he brings him back and for a year invests his life with Paul in the lives of these new believers in Antioch. That takes humility to do that. And what Barnabas understood was that for the person for whom the word Christian is more than just a name, we celebrate with the victories of another and we shoulder the burdens of those who hurt. And so what about you? How easy is it for you to celebrate when someone in your midst is elevated, blessed by God, get something that you don't? And how easy is it for you to run to the side of one that you know is hurting in humility just to be there to help shoulder that load? Again, these Christians could do it because the word Christian was more than a name. It was a changed life. It was a life that was constantly being changed by the grace of God. Principle number three, we're done. A necessary mark of a healthy ministry is the study of God's Word. A necessary mark of a healthy ministry is the study of God's Word. Churches are a dime a dozen, you know that. You find them everywhere you look, especially in this region of the country. And just as prominent or, 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 or as uh, prevalent at our chur- as churches are in this part of the part of the country, sadly, you can also find about that number of variety of teachings that take place in the body of Christ as well. It seems as though in order to build or to grow a church, many believe that you have to be popular, you have to be flashy, you have to do something to tickle the ears of the culture to enable them to come. And sadly, many believers, many teachers, many pastors, many churches have long since jettisoned an adherence to the truth of God's word. They no longer proclaim it the way they're called to. But it's significant to me that for these early believers in Antioch, verse 26, whenever Barnabas and Saul arrived, it says that when he'd found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for an entire year, they met with the church and taught considerable numbers. They taught them. What did they teach them? They taught them the Word of God. And they were so marked by the Word of God, the end of verse 26 says, that it was there that the, the disciples were first called Christians, was in the city, this pagan city, the city that had engaged in temple prostitution under the name of worship. And it was in that city that these believers were first called Christians was because they were marked by the truth of God's word. The word Christian was more than just a name. It was a changed life, and it was a changed life that was constantly being changed, that was lived out, putting Christ on display in the public arena as they walked through the circles that God marched them through consistently. And so we find here that according to these early believers, they could not choose to gravitate away from the truth of God's word. It makes no, it may, it's really no surprise because how does Jesus, how was he described in John 1, 1, for example? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus himself is described as the living word. <laughs> he says, you don't have to turn here, but just listen. In John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, he says, If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Jesus understood in his ministry that we had to be people of the book, people of his word, knowing it, living it, applying it to our lives. 
And for these early believers, they took great pains to make sure that the early Christians and the church found its root deep in the soil of God's word and God's truth. They knew they couldn't gravitate away from it. They knew they couldn't do without it. I remember one time years ago having a conversation with a man in the church where I was serving. I was early on in ministry, probably 18, 20 years ago. This man was in his 60s, probably easily 40 years, my senior. And I remember talking about prayer requests, and I said, you know, I need more consistency in my quiet times, my time studying God's Word. And he made a comment that has rung in me ever since then. He said, you know, as you grow older, you'll come to a place to where God's Word is not seen as an option. You'll see it as something you can't do without. And sadly, for many of us as believers, we go far too long doing without the truth of God's Word, and our lives are not marked by by Jesus Christ. They're not marked by His Word. They're marked by everything but that. And so we don't go to share the gospel. Why? Because we've long since missed His command. We don't live lives of humility. We don't shoulder up to those who are hurting. We don't celebrate the victories of others. Why? Because we're not marked in our heart by the truth of God's Word. It's not confronting the issues of our life. It's not molding and shaping us. It's not encouraging us when we're hurting, when we're down. It's not doing anything in our lives. Why? Because we're not spending the time in it, letting it read us as much as we read it, and shaping our lives in conformity to it. And the church is weak today. The church is weak, why? Because we have gravitated away from the simple truth of his word. Yet for these early believers, the word Christian was more than a name. It was who they were. They were changed. And yet their lives were being changed consistently by the word of God through their relationship with Christ. You know, I tried to find something that I felt could capture the color gold. That's a pretty weak effort, I'll admit it. This is gold, is it not? I could hold this up. I'd say, here's gold, but you wouldn't argue with me. You'd understand what I meant. But this isn't gold. It's just something that carries the appearance of gold. It's gold in color, but it's not gold. This, however, on the ring finger of my left hand, is gold. It doesn't appear as gold. It is gold. (laughs) It doesn't carry just the appearance of it. In reality, it is it. And in this culture today and in this world today, and even in the body of Christ and the church itself, there are those who say, I'm a Christian. But it's no more valid than that sheet of paper is gold. Oh, in appearance, maybe so, because an hour is designated a week to attend church where the name of Christ is proclaimed. Maybe you pray. Maybe you help people. Maybe for you, you try to live a good life and you have warm, fuzzy feelings about God and even believe in Jesus. But the Lord of your life is none other than you yourself. And you carry no more the name of Christ and that sheet of paper carries the quality of gold. But then there are those, when you say, I'm a Christian, there's substance. Your life is not the same as it was before you met Christ. Oh, there's a lot of room to grow. And you've not yet arrived and neither have I. But when you look at the trajectory of your life, Your life was changed in an instant, and it's being changed consistently. Why? Because you, my friend, are a Christian. For these early believers, the word Christian was a derogatory term. It wasn't one that was spoken saying, Oh, boy, you sing those songs, and they sound so pretty. You must be a Christian. Boy, I see you carrying a nice little leather-bound Bible. Genuine leather costs you about 130 bucks. You must be a Christian. No, they didn't call them Christian because they felt good about them. It was a derogatory term came out of a pagan culture that more likely than not hated Jesus from the beginning. And yet you come, you have these early believers that share a message that cannot be silenced. Their lives have been changed. 
inside out. And their lives were being changed. And the culture said, you must be Christians. Literally means in the likeness of Christ. Of the party of Christ. And they were. It was more than just a name. And when they went to work, when they sat with family, and when they spent time with friends where they went, in the highways and byways, they took Christ with them. Because he changed their life. He wasn't an adjective that just described them. He was the noun that made them who they were. They weren't just businessmen and husbands and wives and athletes and workers who happened to be Christians. They were Christians first, who happened to be husbands and wives and business owners and innkeepers and laborers. It was Jesus who had, dis- who had defined them. And the word Christian for them was much more than a name. Tossed out to earn a friend, to get a vote, to make a sale. It was their life. Many of them, you get to Hebrews chapter 11, would die because of that name. And so what about for you? What marks your life? Is the name Christian just one you toss out there flippantly? Or does it describe the fact that you have been changed? And you're being changed with every passing day, with heads bowed and eyes closed. God, this community needs what we just read. They don't need another church popping up on a corner, sing our songs and pray our prayers insulated from society. They need a church filled with Christians, not in name but in reality, whose lives have been changed and are changing. They're willing to see the big picture that we take you with us where we go. You didn't die to be a Sunday-only hobby in our lives, Lord. You died to take over. And Lord, I thank you for many years you took over this life. And Lord, you've been changing it ever since. God, where would I be if I didn't have you in the center What decisions would I have made? What road would I have traveled? What would I have sought to fill the void in my life if you had not filled it? And so God, many of us today, we're saved by grace. We've answered that call. We've turned from our sin. We've come to Jesus. We know you. But Lord, are our lives marked by you as these early believers? Does the truth even get proclaimed that I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, I follow Jesus?